What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, tonight we're debating capitalism versus communism and we are starting right now with Infrared's opening statement. Thanks so much for being with us, Infrared. The floor is all yours. So when socialism first acquired a degree of, um, I guess, social significance, uh, this was during a period in which the substantive social bonds that had glued society together, these traditional relations in the countryside, particularly among peasants, the traditional way of life per se, you know, the, the kind of patriarchal and parochial bonds that were passed down from generation to generation and which were reproduced through mores and through custom intuitively that more or less, while not guaranteeing by any kind of universal right, gave people a minimal sense of stability and sanity and um, normality and, and basic rhythm to their lives. And with the dawning of what we call today modern industrial capitalism, there was this complete severance of people from their traditional way of life, which they experienced as a loss of fundamental sociality. So modern industrial capitalism, specifically as it took form in modern England, represented this and this very alienating antisocial tendency um, as far as the, the, from the perspective of most people. I mean, people were kind of being herded into these crowded cities with no regard for, you know, human life or, you know, basic, uh, um, uh, like people's basic standard of living. I mean, they were more or less treated as a kind of cattle uh, to be, for their labor to be squeezed out purely for purposes of uh, profit and money grubbing. I mean, peasants would describe these factories, these mills uh, of English modern industrial capitalism as like monsters that were literally consuming people, right? And then we all know from um, the poem, I actually, I think it's by Blake, Jerusalem, that these satanic mills, right? Um, so we have this kind of uh, clear association of modern industrial capitalism with this fundamental anti-social evil and loss sociality, because it's not specifically a system that was designed by anyone, but it just represents this wild reduction of every aspect of life 
uh, not only to the interests of private property, but to the narrow interests of the pursuit of profit. Um, obviously, we don't live in that kind of capitalist uh, system anymore, which actually leads me to a, a provocative point. I think people don't really entertain as much as I think they should, which is that we either have or are already slowly transitioning into a post-capitalist system. States and governments since um, the early 20th century or mid 20th century, depending on how you want to look at it, no longer view the economy as this kind of laissez-faire wild west in which things just are treated as um, natural occurrences, but as something that has strategic significance for national security and uh, a tool that's used to raise people's standard of living and well-being, no matter how they're doing it whether they're going about the Soviet-style system of the 20th century or, or something else. Um, the recognition of the fact that the economy is more or less supposed to work in a way that benefits the majority of people is something everyone, even libertarians, kind of take for granted. So I wonder in these debates of the capitalism versus socialism, if it's in a sense already over. Socialism kind of already won because capitalism wasn't some kind of like designed system that people implemented to benefit people. It, it just refers to a kind of state of anarchy in the forces of production uh, where things are just kind of thrown up in the air uh, in a completely anti-social basis. So I'll leave it at that. You got it. Thank you very much for that opening statement. And folks, if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we are a neutral channel hosting debates on science, religion, and politics, welcoming everybody from every walk of life. And I want to say, don't forget to hit that subscribe button for many more juicy debates. For example, Vosh versus Dr. Thomas Bogardis next week, or I should say next month, on whether or not trans women are real women. It's going to be a juicy one. You don't want to miss it. Hit that subscribe button. With that, we're going to kick it over to JF for his opening statement as well. Thanks for being with us, JF. The floor is all yours. I think that Haz is mixing different things here. When he talks of the modern world having a dehumanizing aspect to it, I would agree with a lot of things here, but let's let's be clear about what's attributable to capitalism versus socialism, and let's be clear about what's attributable to the circumstances of modernity and modern production, because it presents a kind of paradisiac view of the old farmers that eventually grew either into communism in the Soviet empire or into capitalism in the English system. Uh, the fact is that there were farmers in the places that became communistic and there were farmers in the places that became capitalistic. And there was no contradiction between being a farmer, being close to nature and capitalism. In fact, uh, I would argue that the, the world in which my grandparents lived, where they were farmer, they had horses, cows, pigs. Uh, was a world of capitalism, a world of private property, and yet it was a world in which people were keeping a connection to nature. So capitalism is not radically opposed to people keeping a connection to nature. However, in capitalism, other options are available to those who want to take them. So if you want to go work in a, in a workshop of some kind in the center of a city doing a very narrow kind of work, you can. But capitalism doesn't force you to do that. Capitalism leaves it open thanks to the conceptions of private property, precisely to do whatever you want to do with your property. 
Uh, I think that we should not uh, dismiss the workshop lifestyle and the, the life of workers as being not the right way to live. And I wouldn't want a society that decides that these ways of living are not worth it. I want a society where people can work just the same way my grandmother at times went to work in the big workshops, stacked some money, uh, continued building her farms with my grandfather, and that's perfect. I don't think that this option should be abolished. Uh, and the problem in a socialist system is that the state will eventually choose for you. So why does socialism fail? And before I get into this major subject that I want to cover tonight, I'll keep reviewing what Haz has said, because I agree with a lot of what he says. He says, capitalism treats humans as cattle that need to be squeezed out. Uh, that is just the nature of the world. The world is limited. And because there are limits to the availability of resources, people fight for these resources. And so, yes, a, an employer must use the, the best tricks that he can use to increase the productivity of his employees. Uh, as far as the employees are concerned, they still get their salary and they can still make the life that they want in capitalism with that salary. That's what matters to me. I don't think that we should demean any sort of jobs. If you do it and you end up being able to raise a family thanks to the money you make there, as far as I'm concerned, that is not a unnatural way of living for human. In fact, it's humans doing what they have to do to survive, what they have to do to pay for their family. Uh, he says that there is a narrow interest of the pursuit of profit in capitalism. Yes, but there's also so much, so much other things. Uh, pe most people don't actually pursue profit. Most people in capitalism, in our current society, pursue sustainability. They pursue having a little home for them and their family. They pursue very meaningful, mean, meaningful things within their pursuit of some salary. So as far as the profit portion of capitalism, that is a, a very minor thing that really concerns certain elites. And it relates to how people make profits when they own stocks of a company or they own private companies and they generate money flows that are in extra of what they really need for just surviving. Now, the question of why there is that extra and why it's a good thing that there is that extra in capitalism boils down to the question of the allocation of resources. The problem is uh, society must find a way to allocate future resources, future workers. Who will you, will you send a bunch of workers to work on iPod 2 or will you send them to work on iPhone 14? Those are decisions that need to be made. Where do I invest my creative endeavor? Where, where do I invest the limits of the resources that I have to throw our society into the future? Capitalism sorts this out very simply by saying, whoever had the right ideas in the past will be rewarded with money and they will be able to control the future even more because they'll have more money. They can inv invest those profits into the most efficient directions that they perceive for society. And because capitalism ultimately relies on selling stuff to people, being able to find something that people want, I would argue that it's actually very much in line with the needs and desire of the people. There is no system in the history of humanity that has found a way to enslave basically everyone, including the elites, 
to the needs and desire of the people. Because every time you go to McDonald's and you buy a Big Mac, you're voting for McDonald's. You're voting for these kitchen to keep operating. And that's why that's what capitalism does best, actually, allocation of resources, which socialism completely fails at. Because socialism believes that some human and some bureaucracy of some kind, or maybe an association of human or a, a group of humans, can decide for everyone what is worth pursuing and what is not worth pursuing. Capitalism says whoever has money will be able to fund what's worth pursuing, and they will fund it with their own property. And if they waste in wasteful in wasteful research directions, they will lose everything, and eventually they won't be able to control the future, and someone else will be here instead. <clears throat> Here's where I agree with Taz. Uh, Socialism kind of already won. That is true. And tonight I'm not debating whether socialism will or will not win. It will win. Our countries are already very heavily socialistic. I prefer even calling them at this point Canada and the US communist countries. The states have taken over so much of the micromanagement of businesses and so much of the means of production. And we have seen in the COVID crisis that indeed the people, the state, can uh, shut down the means of production as they want. And they can completely eradicate private business if they want to. And they've been doing it. So yes, socialism is here. It's already here. Capitalism has lost. The question I ask tonight is how long can socialism survive because of its inherent defects? And the answer is it won't survive for long. A society that is as inefficient as a socialistic society that doesn't have proper eugenics, that rewards needs rather than reward talent, is a society bound for losing, for destroying itself out of the own inefficiencies that it will create for people. And out of the simple fact that having someone else decide for you, having someone else take, your, take whatever is left from the squeezing out of your work and, and going on a, on a collective decision-making basis with this surplus has inevitably in history led to this surplus being redirected to corrupted endeavors that don't satisfy people. The only way to satisfy people is to give them the right of property so that they can vote with their money in a capitalist, healthy society. Thank you very much for that opening as well, JF. And we're going to jump into open conversation. I want to say, folks, if you have a friend who would enjoy this debate, go ahead and click that share button below, and you can share this link with them so they can enjoy it as well. With that, thanks so much, gentlemen. The floor is all yours for open dialogue. Um, so there's a lot there, but I think we should, I want to kind of narrow the focus. Um, I think as a matter of principle, specifically under the um, ideological principles of liberalism, it is true that people on paper are supposed to have the choice. There's no formally prescribed system that says people have to move to the cities or have to abandon their traditional way of life. There is a level of choice there. But my argument is that that's just on paper. When we look at this from a historical perspective, um, beginning with what, what are called the enclosures in, in England and in the British Isles, and if, if uh, the audience doesn't know what that is, it's basically where you, know, you had this kind of property that whose ownership was not very clearly defined, but which nonetheless peasants subsisted off of it. 
uh, in order to kind of earn a living. And there were these enclosures where it was suddenly privatized. And basically it was a way where peasants, you know, had to start paying um, rent, which they couldn't afford to these new landlords and which were forced to basically move to the cities to make a living. Now that's not the only form the proverbial enclosure takes. Uh, the most common form is actually debt, right? It's where it, it becomes increasingly necessary to take out loans to sustain your previous way of living. I think a lot of people after the 2008 financial crash will be able to relate to this is banks kind of, you come become a kind of surf to the banks and in order to pay off uh, your debt, you end up having to actually have your entire uh, property foreclosed, right? Whether it's your uh, plot of land or whether it's your proverbial plot of land, which is in the form of your house, or whether it's in the form of needing to take out debts to get, you know, education or, or something else. Um, this system manages to find these ways of actually eliminating choice in practice and forcing people to kind of become uh, subjected to these dehumanizing and if not dehumanizing in terms of the standard of living, then just undignified um, ways of living where, you know, they don't really, I mean, in the words of uh, Carl Schwab, I think you'll own nothing and be happy, right? Um, I agree with you that we're living in this type of strange socialism, but I do insist on the fact that it's not the same as the one that exists in China or in the Soviet Union, we kind of have a socialism of the banks, socialism of the rich where Wall Street and the city of London are engaging in the central planning in order to enrich their own coffers. So I'm glad we agree on this kind of inevitability of the fact that capitalism as we know it is kind of going away. But the question I would kind of like to pose to you is, how, how would it be possible to return to a free market system when it was the very free market system that, that gave rise to this socialism? I mean, these banks that are becoming these like socialistic organs of planning, um, they came from the private sector, right? They weren't created by, by states. So that's just, yeah. Yes. Well, what's happening in the modern time is that the corporate world, which was initially stemming from capitalistic considerations uh, and, and beliefs uh, has now converged toward making it a specialty to basically screw the decisions of the state, basically employ the corrupt agents of the state to work in their direction so that the so-called markets, which are not free markets anymore, uh, they are manipulated markets in the current world. And the game is your stock value will increase if you find a way to somehow force the money of people into your pockets. And this takes the form, of course, of taxation, which is a forced form of theft. And uh, taxation eventually redirects these flow of funds to the friends of the regime. And the problem is that's that's been socialism from the beginning. It's, uh, it's a growth of certain agents in society via state power. And I don't know of any form of socialism that doesn't converge toward this. So I'd like to hear from you. What do you mean when you say socialism? Because I, I don't I see it as an inevitability that some state-like entity will take power and will eventually work against the interest of the people. But what is your socialism? Well, the way I would look at socialism is similar to the way Marx and Engels would look at it. And they would call it scientific socialism. What they meant by that was basically that 
we're going to recognize that there's this inevitability of this increasing socialization of the means of production that's that's happening because of these new monopolies and these new trusts and the new role of banks right and what they were saying is that while we recognize that fact we're going to um, make sure that these monopolies lose their power and lose their control over society by making them in some sense, and it can vary what form this takes, owned by the commons, owned by the public. So in the Soviet Union, um, this initially took the form of just the state owning directly most of the means of production. Whereas in countries like China, you have the state um, having a privileged role in setting the goals of production, whereas it doesn't directly own all the enterprises, but it owns the purpose um, that they work toward, whether that's increasing GDP or whether that's you know, um, following some kind of state-directed initiative. But in this way, you can preserve the most amount of basic human dignity and liberty because the site, the true site of our social commons, which is actually what's being monopolized by these bankers and these big corporations, belongs in some sense to the people. Now, the Soviet Union was riven with uh, a tremendous bureaucracy and tremendous levels of corruption. Not a lot of people know this, but during the Stalin years with the Stakhanovite movement, that was actually a movement directed against that very same bureaucracy. It was almost like a, a class struggle within the Soviet Union where, where Stalin was this like populistic leader who was directing people against the managerial elites. And the same actual process happened in China with its cultural revolution. So I think one of the big differences in the experience of uh, the communists, because we can, we can distinguish communism, I guess, just on the formal level. They, they were ruled by communist parties. Um, a, a difference in that experience was that the leaders there were kind of at the top fighting on behalf of the interests of the people to root out these corrupt and bureaucratic elements that kind of made their way squeezing in between, right? And then you see a similar process actually going on in today's China with um, not a lot, and again, a lot, a lot of Western audiences know this, but Xi Jinping is, is a populistic leader who is very much leading the Chinese people in these initiatives against the corruption and bureaucracy and, um, uh, you know, uh, kind of almost cr criminal activities of uh, high and low ranking party officials. So I think one of the things I would distinguish between communism and this kind of banker socialism we have now is that communism is always engaged in this process of vigilantly fighting against uh, those elements that do inevitably arise that work against the interests of the people as a whole. But the devil is in the detail. How do you accomplish this? Because you seem to have just acknowledged that socialistic, that previous socialistic uh, systems have converged toward absolute corruption. You say we need to keep an eye out for corruption, but how do you make that a reality? Because humans are flawed, humans follow their own incentives, and in a state-controlled system, the problem is that the incentives are extremely uh, skewed toward corruption. I think I, I would disagree with the notion that it was absolute corruption. I think there was corruption, but I think movements can be led from a collaboration between the people below, right? And then the, the, the leader above. And if the leader himself is corrupt, then, you know, you, 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 you wouldn't even be able to sustain a strong communist state in the first place. So it's from this alliance between a strong leader um, 
and the people that I think addresses that corruption the most. And in, in this case of the Soviet Union, this was people like Stalin, this was people like Mao, and today it's Xi Jinping. And to a lesser extent, I know Russia is not communist anymore, but Putin also fulfills this role to an extent uh, in his battle against the Russian oligarchs. So I think there has to be a certain level of, there's no systemic guarantee, in other words. I think in this unity between a true leader and the people, you do have this element where it's not a system securing anything's going to happen, but you have a genuine human initiative, uh, not premised by any system, but just, and uh, not purely based on voluntary will, but just it's the way humans assert their agency over systems in the first place. And, you know, Hegel, I don't want to get too convoluted here, but Hegel described the role of the monarch, I think, in a similar way, not in the populist sense, but just Hegel described this kind of political system. And he insisted there had to be a monarch just to represent that aspect of human freedom that's not conditioned or rigged by some kind of system. Well, it's stunning to me how naive this is. You're basically telling us you believe human beings will combat uh, corruption as it installs itself into the system. Capitalism has a much better answer to this. It doesn't leave it to humans. Capitalism says you will interact with whoever you want. You will buy from whichever corporation produces stuff that you want. And as such, if a corporation cheats or produces a product that is not satisfying to people, on the long term, they won't make money anymore. No one will buy their product. And again and again, we, we see corporations be born and disappear based on the quality of what they bring to the market. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge function of society to be capable of eliminating the inefficient and the incompetent and you have no mechanism for it other than say i will just trust that humans in the future will somehow get together and, and pursue liberty that is naive and wrong by every standard of evidence we've have from history i disagree i think the standard of evidence from history shows that it is precisely the capitalist system that has given rise to this monstrosity of the World Economic Forum and, you know, um, the billionaire elites, you know, we have the Bill Gates, we have the George Soros's, we have the um, Carl Schwab type of leaders and their agenda for the Great Reset. This has all come from capitalism. So when we talk about potential flaws within the socialist system, we have to keep in mind that it didn't lead to this point of absolute evil that we're now facing uh, from the current global capitalist class that's conspiring openly now against the peoples of their respective countries. And you mentioned that capitalism does have an element of competition where people can choose what products are better. But I think as far as capitalism is concerned, that's just an ideal. In, pay, in practice, it's not really how it works. In practice, you have these monopolies that work in collaboration with the government um, and I don't know if there's an extent to which, you know, people would prefer the iPhone over Android, but all of these companies that we use to illustrate examples of capitalism are, have, are very socialistic, not only in how they operate as these kind of centrally planned corporate monstrosities, but also the fact that they're engaged in practices of regulatory capture. They're getting subsidies from the U.S. government. They work not only with the government, but even with our military and the Pentagon. They're, they make use of technologies that were researched and government funded in the first place. 
I, I, I personally find it very naive to think that the corporations that exist today are the result of some kind of free market rather than a um, kind of socialism for the rich that's rigged in their favor. Well, I, I don't think that we have free market. So I don't think that our current system is an ideal version of capitalism. I think it's barely capitalism anymore. But uh, let's go back to Bill Gates and the Great Reset and uh, Klaus Schwab. These people wouldn't be a problem in a purely capitalistic society because they would yap, yap, yap about the vaccine or whatever shit they want to promote. And people would just discard them. And if you don't discard them, you'd be punished by whatever price is to pay for trusting these voices who want to impose stuff on people. But the problem of Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates is that they have the tool of the state at their disposal. The problem is that they can influence policy that becomes law and that eventually oppresses people's choices. It is not a problem that Bill Gates has amounted as amassed no matter how much money he has amassed, because that money is meaningless to me as long as he doesn't have the power of law over my head. Now, when he gets the power of law, suddenly he can veer the decisions of the government toward favoring himself, veer the propaganda related to uh, medical stuff uh, to in a certain direction and in his advantage. But that is socialism. That is the state-controlled aspect of our society, which precisely is a violation of capitalistic principle because it's all based on taxation and ultimately theft. So basically, capitalists are only a problem when the world becomes socialistic, when the world becomes state-based. If Bill Gates was just a rich man talking, and if people who don't want to listen to him don't don't listen to him, things would, would go well because whoever takes his advice and ends up dying or not reproducing or being punished economically for doing the wrong counsels that he gives to people, they would they would get the proper punishment. And in a future world, there would be less of the genes of people who listen to Bill Gates and more of the genes of those who ignore him. The problem is that in our current world, we are not to ignore Bill Gates. In our current world, there's a direct line between Bill Gates and what he wants and someone imposing mask by force onto my mouth. That's the problem. And it's a problem that stems from state power. And you still haven't answered whether your social, your view of socialism ultimately relies on a state-like entity. Well, I think the problem with this idea of pure capitalism is just that it's an idea. At best, it's um, it's a utopian vision of the world. And, and, and more realistically, I think what we call pure capitalism inevitably does give rise to you know its opposite in the form of this monstrous kind of corporate monopoly um, socialism, right? And I, I would also like to propose the question of how a pure capitalism could avoid that, because it's it's my view that this site of our common sociality, of our common reality as a people, of our countries or whatever else you want to call it, um, in the form of the state, that that's, that's an inevitable thing. It's always been a fact of human societies across all of history. So we either have to take responsibility for that and um, uh, m- ensure in some capacity that it serves the people, that we have a state that serves the people, that we have a um, government that serves the people, that we have a a common social agenda 
that maximizes maximizes human flourishing and um you know uh what's in the interest of the majority of people so that these private interests can't capture the state and and use it because i think this the state if we just take that to mean some kind of central you know unity of the people and, and i know that you know technically in communism in the higher stages there won't be a state but just for purposes of um simplification. I think that's an inevitability, some kind of central unity of the people, some kind of central social purpose and rationality, no matter how vague and broad that has to be, I think that's an inevitability. Now, I think China is a good example of a contemporary socialist society where, you know, the state doesn't necessarily directly control everything, but it does, one, serve the people, and it exists for the purposes of maximizing the standard of living and well-being of the Chinese people. And two, um, it sets these very broad goals. Like in five years, we want this amount of urbanization. We want, you know, high-speed rail across the country. We want, you know, uh, an increase in the GDP. We want some kind of, um, you know, more, I guess, sustainable way of living. We want people to have and have home ownership. And actually, not a lot of people know this. China has among the highest rates of uh, millennial home ownership in the entire world, right? It's 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 incredible. China is supposed to be a communist state, and yet there's less home ownership, significantly less in, in the United States compared to China. So they set these broad goals, and then they allow various different ways in which people can set about to reach those goals. Um, it, you know, in Deng Xiaoping's words, uh, it doesn't matter what the color of the cat is, as long as it catches mice. So there's a I think the color matters a little bit when you look at their censorship policies. They do care a little bit about how we get to their goals, right? Well, China has an, an, a censorship culture. It has a precedent of censorship, but that also has a lot to do with Asian culture in general, where, you know, we live in America. We like to be able to say whatever we want, but in more Eastern countries, you know, there are things that are just from a cultural perspective, not publicly acceptable to say. And in China's case, um, you know, insulting the China or the People's Republic or the leaders of China, they have set that as their red line as far as what's not allowed. I don't think we should import China's specific way of governance to the United States because we have a different culture, right? Americans are a different people than, than China. But I do think we can learn from the fact that they can have a state that serves the people and which is able to pursue that goal um, without having the state to have to directly actually own uh, everything. Now, if I understood correctly, you believe that after a period of socialism, uh, as many communists believe, there will be a transition to a stateless society. Is that correct? And how does that happen? How do all these powerful people with power in the government suddenly decide that's the D-Day or dissolving the government? Well, that's just the word. What communists believe is that, and this is a process that could take hundreds of years, you know, there's no set time, but the state eventually dissolves by becoming superfluous. So the necessity of the state to have to rule over men disappears because human beings reach a certain level through um, unleashing the forces of production that doesn't require any longer um, a kind of central state apparatus that, the, the key word is not central apparatus, but just central state apparatus of the need for coercion, the need to kind of have 
laws that kind of restrict um, human liberty to it, people will become advanced enough to not, you know, have to, they'll be able to kind of obey a common social principle and common social law without it having to be enforced violently. Now you could say that's a dream and that's a utopia, but I think it's an admirable goal to have, you know, for the future that, you know, because I think it does set a standard. And this is, by the way, we know a lot about China's authoritarianism. We don't know that China in other respects is also a very libertarian country, right? In China, they don't like having, you know, the police or the government always to be in people's business and bother them on their daily lives. You know, vendors and, and you know, people who sell fruit on the street, on the side of the road and, and stuff. It's, there's much less regulation of this kind of stuff in China than in Western countries. And I think it's, it's a good ideal to have to not consider the state to be a god, right? The state is something that serves the people. And if there didn't have to be a state, that would be great. The only reason we have a state is because there needs to be one. So for as long as there needs to be a state, there should be a state. But if we do arrive at this point in which the state becomes superfluous and you know the productive forces are developed to such an extent that we don't need this kind of violent, coercive power over men and women anymore. I mean, why? I don't think that's, you know, some, something to oppose. So what is violence? Do you consider it's violence, the fact that people have to go to work to have food on their table? Um, no, I think that's an inevitability of life, right? If you don't work, you know, you're going to you know, if you don't, you're going to starve and die, not because someone has a gun to your head, but because no one's going to be doing the work that comes with living and surviving. So there's a certain extent to which, no, I mean, you know, you do have to, at a certain level, work to survive. Now, it'd be nice if we got to a level unleashing the productive forces where people either had to work very low hours or, you know, didn't even, you know, we could just have robots do everything or something. That's, Nice. I, although I think human beings will always want to have some kind of way of fulfilling a higher purpose through work. I mean, it would be nice if, if that didn't have to happen. I, I think that in a modern society, I don't think it's the state's job to force people uh, to work, especially not in a modern society. So I'm, I'm against that, obviously. Um, so, yeah. I, Now, I'm worried about the unsustainability at the evolutionary level of uh, your project. So I'd like to ask some questions about this. Are you for social welfare? Do people get paid uh, if they are not willing to work in a communistic society of your kind? Um, I, I, I mean, if you look at countries like China, people are not allowed to just subsist without having to work. So if you don't work, I mean, I think there should be a set minimum. We can afford that in a modern society. But in order to be able to live a fulfilling human life beyond the bare minimum, I think, obviously, yeah, you should have to work. And I think, uh, I don't think what the majority of people want is more welfare. I think what they want is more opportunity. And the problem- Well, it seems according to people's voting pattern that they do want more welfare. It seems that when you give power to the people, they vote themselves the right to steal money from billionaires and to give it to themselves. That's not what people have voted for, though. I think people have voted generally, especially in, in the Trump election of 2016, for more opportunity. They want jobs back. They want their old kind of jobs that they used to have, manufacturing jobs which are good paying and which- 
sustain their lives well. They want to be able to live dignified lives uh, in general. And the problem is that there's no opportunity because the opportunity has been squashed and captured by these capitalist monopolies, uh, which prohibit any real competition. But these capitalist monopoly either are capitalistic and therefore respond to some need of the people who pay them, or they have a flow of money coming from the state or from an unjust participation of the state in the micromanagement of society. And my problem is that the society you want to create, uh, even if it's a China-like society, which you describe as not having uh, big social welfare and basically forcing people to work if they want uh, if they want some payment, the problem is that the state is directing the direction that you will take in your work. The state is deciding how resources should be allocated. Now, it can work for a while. I have no uh, issue with this. I'm sure it can work for decades. The problem is long term. How do you uh, how do you invest the wealth of America in 1951 to bring it to where it is in 2022? No one, no human being, no administration, no party can ever make that decision of driving the world forward so much that you you start from 1951 and you basically can build houses and roads. Uh, down to you have the internet, you have the cell phones, you have everything. And all of it was basically decided by an invisible hand, the invisible hand of the free market and what people wanted and what people thought people wanted, because that's what innovation is. The problem is if you keep paying people for working at furthering the endeavors of the state and their decision of allocation of resources, you send them working in unproductive direction, you send them also being rewarded for working in unproductive direction. And the reason capitalistic society in the last century have been leading the world in terms of, and even creating goods that eventually came to be used in China, for example, uh, electronics, computers, internet, all of it was driven first by capitalism and eventually got used in Asian societies. Uh, the reason we can do this is we have allocation of resources that are based on an expectation of profit. If there's no expectation of profit in the long term in your system, if there's no way for people to pursue dreams that would unlock potentials for increasing their wealth in massive amounts, you are screwing the system of capitalism that properly gives power to those who have demonstrated past success in allocating resources. I disagree, though, with the description that since 1951, it was an invisible hand driving the changes that had happened. I think if you research closely um, the role in which the government and what we call the modern deep state had in actually planting almost decade by decade, the uh, planning the almost decade by decade, a very broad and fundamental vision of the world going forward. You can see, I mean, with the Bretton Woods plan, with, you know, the government research um, grants that and, and uh, the military research that would eventually give rise to the Internet and the government incorporation of cybernetics, you know, which is systems theory and information. I think it's very, and, and other stuff we don't even really know, but I think it's very clear to a certain extent. I mean, things were kind of planned in a way. They were not given to the invisible hand of, of the free market in any capacity. And this is especially true for um, 
the latter part of the 20th century, where the government started to adopt even these top-down style socialistic methods in order to compete with the Soviet Union. So, well, I yeah. disagree with that interpretation of the world. I think it was vastly driven by the free market. You may see one or two state actors. I acknowledge that the internet at the beginnings was developed within the state and eventually came out of it, but notably, it emerged, even if it emerged from agents of the state, and, and I think that you overrepresent the role of the state in setting the technological advancement of America. But even if I was to grant this, it came from a capitalist society. And it's like we didn't see the internet being developed in European, African, or Asian countries. It came ultimately from the technological developments of a capitalist society. And most importantly, because capitalist societies produce surplus and they handle this surplus wisely, whereas the surplus in a more socialistic driven society is controlled by the people and misdirected toward uh, their their immediate well-being and eventually wasted basically in consumption and welfare. I think almost the opposite is true though, because in the experience of what we typically associate with the communist experience, which was China and the Soviet Union, immediately what you did have was a separation of people from their ability to immediately gratify their immediate interests through surpluses in the form of these kind of primitive forms of accumulation. It's used more simple terms in case people don't know what that means. It was basically this way of aggregating and pooling together everybody's resources as small peasants and farmers in order to produce this social surplus that could be used by the state not to gratify people's immediate interests. I mean, far, far from it. I mean, in this early stages, we were dealing with a very high level of poverty uh, and, and as far as people's ability to uh, consume. But for purposes of public works to either, in the case of the USSR, engage in industrialization. In the USSR, I mean, it industrialized faster than any country in, in history. I mean, maybe with the exception of Japan, I'm not sure. Um, and that was without any loans from Western banks whatsoever. Uh, or in the case of China, public works and public infrastructure, uh, which is still, by the way, used to this day, the, the great leap forward um, people's commune, common infrastructure still used. So I don't actually think it's true that in socialism, the common surplus that's produced by the people is expended in a way that's just immediately immediate consumption. That's just not the experience we see in history. I mean, certainly not true for contemporary China, where you know resources are not allocated all in, in, in a way that's planned beforehand. Though I would propose that even above the kind of system China has today, there are uh, researchers and scholars who have pointed out that with the rise of supercomputers and computation technologies, I wonder if it would be possible to rationally allocate resources in our society in a rational and efficient way um, with the kind of decentralized and technologies using systems theory and the internet and so on and so on. So I'm curious to hear what, what you would think about that. I'll come back to that point. I will just say about the uh, the quick uh, rise to industrial society uh, in the Soviet Union. I don't deny this. Uh, it's probably what happens when you have a lot of central control. We often say that dictatorships are more efficient than democracy, and that could be also uh, happening here. The problem, of course, with the Soviet system 
is that we have seen that in intergenerational times, it couldn't survive, it couldn't handle the progresses of the world in the way capitalist societies have been successful at doing. So in the face of many changes of, uh, of economic context, uh, the, the, the communist system is too, uh, too centrally controlled to be able to handle the shock, whereas capitalism is plastic, it can handle the shock and change and redirect resources quickly. Uh, on the question of AI and rational allocation of resources, we end up with the problem of what is rational? Because uh, you, you talk with uh, medical experts these days and they think that it's rational basically to force people to take certain medical products. Uh, is that rational? Well, it's rational by their standard because they think that you'll save grandma from having a virus if you take it. Uh, but is it rational by other standards? Is it rational for everyone? Is it rational for an individual decision maker who knows that other people would be protected by this medical product? And do they have to take it themselves? Perhaps it's not rational for them. So we end up with the problem that wanting to centrally control everything down to delegating the task to some central AI the problem is that whoever sets the settings on these AIs will have set the details of the devil, will have set how this AI will ultimately serve people in some ways, but also massively oppress people in other ways. And we've seen it in China with their intervention in the reproductive domain, which has had terrible consequences, uh, the one-child policy the preference of uh, choosing children that are male eventually leads today to with China being stuck with a problem of incels, basically. So when you follow a rational uh, framework, you have first to define what will be the basis for your rational decision making. Well, um, just to be clear, with the new technologies and specifically within the paradigm of cybernetics, the difference is decentralization. So consumer inputs would like go into a computer that's based on the choices of the people that would then um, determine what needs to be produced based on what people choose. So it's not going to be drafting a plan that's going to force people to adopt certain uh, consumption practices before the fact. That would be like a top-down method of planning that's more similar to what the kind of USSR had. Um, and I'll get to that point in just a second. This would be more the incorporation of, you know, more decentralized cybernetic technologies and information technologies that operate on the basis of feedback loops. And that's what AI does. And actually, I mean, companies today already basically do that. Almost all of the major capitalist corporations have incorporated AI and have become these organs of totalizing central planning, uh, except they're actually rigging it. I mean, in the case of BlackRock, you have you know, money that's being invested into various companies based on ESG scores, not on the basis of um, what people want, but on the basis of the extent to which they're fulfilling the so-called green agenda, or they're fulfilling the other agendas, uh, you know, they're more socially woke, or, you know, BlackRock has some, re and it's just all a kind of bubble that's not even based on the production of real things. Um, now, on the point, just very quickly, I don't want to drag this on, but on the point of the, um, the Soviet Union, I do agree that it came to a point where it was not able to respond to this new information economy, this new light economy of, of the production of consumer goods. But I think one would have to grant that China did 
respond and adjust to this without sacrificing the fundamentals of its socialist system in a pretty um, good way. China has survived longer, indeed, that is true. I, I suspect that eventually it's just a matter of time that there is some amount of change that an authoritarian regime just cannot take. And in the case of the Soviet Union, it may have been two, three generations. And in the case of China, it might be five or six. But I think any authoritarian system is bound to uh, face the problem that the decision making is not made by the person who paid the price. That's the fundamental problem of any state authority. Now, I want to go back to your computer system. It's very interesting because you're saying it's a decentralized computer system, but in the end, what you have done is you have translated the real democracy and put it in the cybernetic world. Uh, if you have a computer that asks people what they want, you still aren't, haven't faced the central problem, the centralized problem of, so what is the law? Like if 70% of people vote for, in your system, for um, drugs should be legal and 30% vote for drugs should not be legal. What is the system by which you decide what is a proper oppression of a part of society against another part of society? I think when you have those polarizations that are so powerful that they're kind of dividing people, even 70-30, right? It's a very significant polarization. I think there's a deeper problem and a deeper divide at hand that, you know, society has to address in another way. Why is it that one part of society is very liberal, whereas another is very conservative? Is there a way to kind of synthesize that contradiction and produce an interaction that's, that people can come to an agreement about in some form? So I think that's a deeper problem. But as far as the kind of democracy of, of production is concerned, I think it's important to remember that this is just on the basics of how things are being produced. So people aren't forced to consume things they don't want to. If a minority, let's say, I'm not sure exactly how the system works. I recommend the work of Paul Cockshot, and he wrote a book. It's called um, the something like uh, A Path to New Socialism or... The exact title of the book is, let me just get it here. It's Towards a New Socialism by um, Paul Cockshot and Alan Cottrell, where basically like if 5% if of people want or prefer a certain product, that would, that would still be produced for them. So it's it, the way cybernetics works and the way it incorporates decentralized feedback loops to ultimately produce a, a central plan. It's kind of complicated and there's complicated math behind it that I'm not I'll confess I'm not very familiar with it, but I do think it, it just attests to the fact that there are alternatives to be able to actually um, kind of have a society that doesn't even necessarily have to rely primarily on markets. Now, we haven't gotten anywhere close to a society like that today. I mean, China still makes heavy use of the market, and I expect in a, in a socialist or communist America, markets would still have a very strong role. But I do think it's interesting to think about, at least as far as, you know, thinking about other possibilities. Um, you know, when it comes to democracy, one of the things I do agree with is that it would be better for the state to have less, a, less of a role in um, dictating people's uh, local cultures and practices and ways of life that should be dictated by mores and customs and things that are on the grassroots. So even though China is a very collectivistic society, 
most of the morality of Chinese society is enforced through culture. It's not enforced through laws. So I think we would be looking at something similar where culture will have more of a role in regulating behavior instead of laws. But why does it have to be enforced at all? Are you for mob uh, phenomena? Do you support cancel culture? Do you support people pressuring their loved ones into making medical decision-making against their will? What, what is the limit to this culture influencing human behavior? I think you need to find a balance between respecting other human beings' um, individuality and choices and understanding that there are some things, for example, I think incest or bestiality or, you know, things like that are always going to be shunned upon and looked down upon by society. And I don't think that's really a bad thing. Um, I think you can't, I, I'm against cancel culture, but to, an, to another extent, you can't really pick and choose. I mean, if you don't want to be judged by others, one should stay away from others, right? To the extent that one is in a society What, there is going to be a certain level of shame and, 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 you know, cultural regulation of behavior that's not explicit or on the paper, but it's just something you can't really control. All right. Well, uh, I guess we can be headed toward our concluding statement because that's it for my uh, examination, unless there were other things you wanted to explore. Uh, I'm wondering, I mean, because I still don't have a full definition of where you're headed and what your society would look like because you seem to be respecting people's liberty and even want a smaller state. Uh, it seems that if you had what you wanted, people might very well converge toward a fully capitalistic society again. In other words, if, if you reduce the strength, strength of the state, uh, people will naturally converge to what they've naturally converged in America in the last 200 years, which is a capitalistic world. Well, I like to say I'm a communist who believes in freer markets. And what that means is that I want the state to be able to wrest control from Wall Street and the city of London and the private corporations, those aspects of life that are going to be inevitably social and which are going to be inevitably held in common to some extent and, and have some, you know, degree of control by a common state. And then when it comes to those things that a state is not in its power to um, regulate because of a lack of knowledge or otherwise, I do think I, I want more room for human liberty and more room for human freedom to be able to experiment. You know, and this is the American way. I'm an American communist. I, I, I uh, am fully um, invested in the American culture of experimentation and pragmatism and not having the government on your back you know, um, controlling your life and whether or not it would, it would be a, a form of capitalism. I, th I don't think it would be the capitalism we've had, but ironically, I do think that the, the society that I envision would live up more to the ideals of what the ideologists of capitalism believe in just on paper, that they want more liberty. They want freer markets Uh, they want less government control over people's everyday lives. Um, they don't. They want to avoid the pitfalls of kind of um, monopolist overreach and you know uh, rigged markets. And they're against the Federal Reserve and things like that. I think the only difference I have with these kind of libertarians is that uh, I want us to have a central bank instead of a Federal Reserve. I don't think you can completely eliminate this aspect of our common social. Um, our common social uh, 
unity that has to be addressed and, and taken responsibility for in some capacity. The problem is that's the loophole. That's the entry door for power and state power to grow infinitely until it takeovers every single aspect of your decision making. So the problem is you have good goals and good intentions, but you're passing through the wrong, in my view, you're passing through the wrong way. You are giving uh, so, too much power to the state, which eventually it will use against you and which eventually will restrain your liberty. I mean, this is it, the problem is the zero sum game between private money and state money. In the end, a dollar is either in my pocket and I can decide what to do with it, or it's in the state's pocket and they will decide what I do with it. And that's a fundamental problem. The problem of American society precisely for the last 200 years is this constant growing of the number of dollars in the pocket of the state versus the number of dollars in an everyday person's pockets. That's the problem to solve, and we solve this by enforcing a very, very small state that can only apply laws as it relates to murder, rape, and other unconsensual relationships. Uh, and that's all that the state should do. If you give it any other role, it will grow, grow, and grow, and it will attribute itself more power up to the current state of America. I think the weaker a state is, the more it has to grow. And the more powerful a state is, the less big it has to be because it's powerful enough to deal with the, the fundamentals and the basics without having to overextend itself and, and overreach itself. And in that regard, I think we should kind of stop having this view of just seeing it purely as a difference between individuals and systems. I think at a certain point, we as individuals have to take responsibility for our system. So if we fear um, government overreach and corruption and power corrupting and, and all that, you know, in 1984 happening, we to an extent have to take responsibility for the state in some form. In America, we have a very ingrained culture of, you know, believing in the Second Amendment, believing in a checks and balances of where the people can have some kind of leverage to keep the overreach of the state in check. Now, we get confused when we look at Stalin and Mao and the communist states, and we think that these are totalitarian dictators um, that were controlling everyone's life. Well, the truth was, in those states, the real tyrants were the lower-level bureaucrats and lower-level managers, and actually the leaders like Stalin and Mao and other communist leaders, were. that was the form and expression of people's um, checks and balances as far as the power of the state is concerned. At local levels, when these party bosses and lower level managers would act as bullies and tyrants, they would write letters to Moscow or write, write letters to Beijing and they would invoke the authority of the central leader to uplift themselves. And um, so it's kind of, you have, there's different ways in which people establish their social contract with the state and establish having an ability to um, uh, counteract the state's tendency to corruption. I think just think it takes different form depending on the culture. You know, Eastern cultures, they're more collectivistic. They have more of an emphasis on a kind of central leader. America is a more individualistic culture and we have more of an emphasis, you know, on, uh, on individual securing the liberty in some kind of way. So I think it can take different forms depending on the culture. Well, I'm fascinated by what I've heard from you, which is you said sometimes a very strong state is needed so that it doesn't need to be big. Uh, it's uh, it's inviting people to basically 
create a st strong state that will eventually turn against them. I'm afraid that you don't have the mechanism even for America to remain in its current state. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it through the progression of more and more personally invading laws in the Democrat states of America. Uh, it's a matter of time before it's spread throughout the country. We see it in the advancement of the on the control of the state over the American individual and American bodies. Uh, there is simply no solution. Either there is no state or there is one, and that state will eventually grow to oppress you and become totalitarian. I mean, just seeing what America has done from being on the inside, a beautiful society of liberty, creation, and advancement, but on the outside, through the ends of the state, has been killing people across the planet, has been leading wars, regime change wars, regime change operations, uh, all of this useless to the American people, all of this on basically human, bureaucratic, technocratic decision-making. This is the hell that awaits anyone who ends up giving the keys to uh, to the state to grow in size. Well, I think I would just basically respond to that by saying, I think the problem in America is the deep state. We have this unaccountable, unelected, invisible force that that, that is not answerable to the people in any capacity, doesn't even explicitly serve our interests and it's an overgrowth to what was enshrined in our constitution uh to be the kind of organs of representative power which is the form of our republic and the deep state is a layer on top of that which is completely unjustifiable from our very constitution so we have an issue that we don't just have the state which is the constitution state we have this extra layer on top of that which is this dictatorship of the capitalist class now, the question, the real question is, is a dictatorship inevitable? Well, if it is, my view is that we should have a dictatorship of the people. We have a, should have a dictatorship of the working class where it will be explicit, not invisible and not in the shadows, maybe in the form of a communist party. After all, the founding fathers did not envision a multi-party system. They envisioned a single party system um, that will somehow work on top of the constitution in a formally explicit way or otherwise, or maybe we won't need to have any layer on top whatsoever. And there's a way to safeguard the original simplicity of the American Republic. Well, either way, I think the issue is not so much states in general, as much as deep states, which I think is the foremost enemy of the, the people of the world today. Well, then that could be the title for tonight. James could change it. Communism and capitalism agree against the deep state. <laughs> Juicy, to say the least. We'll jump into the Q&A, but before we do, want to mention, folks, our guests are linked in the description. That includes, if you're listening via the podcast, as all of our debates are put onto the podcast within 24 hours, where we link our guests there as well, in case you want to hear more. And this one, coming in from, thanks, Lyra Productions says, 4JF. Do central banks like the Fed fit into your framework of capitalism, or do you consider central monetary policy to be socialist slash communist? I consider it socialist. Uh, it may have been needed at times in the past, but I think that to strive for the ideal of capitalism, you would have to strive for, a, for privately owned monies. And that means potentially different monies, different currencies. And I think that the crypto world has shown us that it's entirely possible. 
You got it. USB in first try says government can't micromanage people without making life suck. I think that's for you, Haas, but. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I don't think it's the government's role to micromanage individuals' lives. You got it. Space is a lie, says. You guys are being strangely civil. <laughs> well, uh, next one. See, Getch, thanks for your your uh, your compliments. Says James, hope you're well. Thanks for the content as always. And I want to pass that thank you on to the guests as they are the lifeblood of the channel. As mentioned, they are linked in the description. And you guys, a couple of civil guys. We look at you guys. Anyway, you, people, I'm excited. I, I'm excited and people are excited to see you guys get to engage. It's been a very thoughtful civil discourse that's what i would call it net seven says thank you modern day debate for having these interesting debates by the way if you ever need a neoconservative debater i'm your man well thanks for letting me know and thanks for your kind words again all credit to the guests linked in the description usb in first try says infrared needs to research ch blue shirts society familiar with that uh i've never heard i'll i'll be sure to google that sometime jf is that is something you're familiar with no, I don't. Gotcha. This one coming in from Joe Schwartz. Thanks for your question as well. It says, Infrared, what is your favorite thing about capitalism, though? And JF, what's your favorite thing about communism if you had to pick one thing that's, you could say, the least hated in your mind or the least deserving of hate? I think the best thing about capitalism is the way in which it develops the forces of production, at least in the original form from uh, modern England. It kind of, you get from this status quo of, you know, one way of living to this kind of unleashing of human creative ability through modern scientific technology and so on and so on. So I think that's a, while there's downsides, I think in general, that's a big plus from capitalism. I think a great thing about communism is the intention. Because the original communism from Marx, you realize that it's a striving for liberty. But unfortunately, he got everything wrong in how to get there. You got it. This one coming in from, do appreciate your question. You to have heck you says, question for JF. If a company's product killing people causes that company to go out of business, why didn't Philip Morris and ExxonMobil fold years ago? Fold, fold in what circumstance? I'm not sure what he means. I, I don't know the, the historic case. But I will say, uh, you know, capitalism isn't a guarantee that everything is always perfect. There are imperfections in the system. There are cases where I don't know, you'll buy meat and it's poisoned. Uh, but the idea is that at least in capitalism, the system is organized such that the right people get punished. So if a meat producer starts producing meat that is of low quality, that makes people sick or even die, eventually people coordinate and they say, hey, that's a dangerous place to go. Don't buy meat there. And eventually it gets punished uh, in at some point. Uh, if, he was if the co corporation was to continue indefinitely killing people, inevitably there would eventually be an evolution genetically people would eventually be evolutionarily punished for buying that meat and people who buy different types of meat would be advantaged so the beauty of capitalism is how it interfaces with natural selection you got it this one coming in from appreciate your question dave says if you have time i'd be interested in jf's take on the block spending one of their limited debate days on removing prayer from parliament 
the block spending. <laughs> I've not heard of this news. Uh, do you know what it is, James? This is, I have no idea. Prayer, prayer from Parliament. Well, I, I'm against the state. So all these questions about should the state be uh, religious neutral? Uh, I think the state shouldn't exist. So yeah, if it exists, sure, I'm for the religious neutrality. But uh, ultimately, I'm for the destruction of the state and its replacement with a very, very minimal state. You got it. And let's see. CL, I think you said that you might have sent in a question. I am peeking around. I don't see it. So I'm maybe you're referring to somebody else in terms of having sent them a question in the chat. But do want to say, folks, want to say our guests are linked in the description. We really do appreciate the guests as Infrared and JF and other debaters like them are the lifeblood of modern day debate. And so thank you very much, Infrared and JF. It's been a true pleasure to have you guys tonight. Yep. Thank thank you you. for having us. And I just wanted to clear one last thing up unrelated to this debate, which was regarding Adam something, which was um, just to be sure you're fair. I, I don't want to like. I don't want you to blindside him when he's not here to defend himself. Well, he, he did the same to me, though, to well, be fair. I just, it's, I've, in modern day debates history, I've found that that is really bad for us. We, we, I, I understand. I, I will say on yeah. air that I, I will say it's true that you have not backed out of a debate with him. You just said that you didn't want Dylan to get out of the debate or you didn't want Dylan to be able to host slash moderate your debate yeah, with not, not get out, but just I didn't want Dylan to co-host. That's it. I agreed. I'll, I'll agree with that because that's something that I, in my DMs, I've seen it. It's true. And so if you guys, if you guys, if you and Adam and Destiny and uh, in Hinkle Jackson. or whoever you might yeah. want as a partner wanted to do a debate, I'm, I'm open to hosting. I just don't want because I found like seriously. Yeah, because I mean, the, the tweet you said was like that Adam couldn't make it this one and it's a public tweet. So I just found it strange how he was saying you know, me and Jackson backed out because, you know, it, you did make a public tweet saying that he was the one who couldn't make it. I'd have to remember, like, I, I honestly can't remember what it, I can't remember what it was, but I promise um, I'm willing to host it and I, I'm willing to, uh, For it's, sure, yeah. it's true that what you're saying is true that you had not backed out. It was that you didn't want Dylan to be able to host it because uh, long story short though, I so I, thanks for understanding infrared yeah. in terms of, and then also, want to say our guests are linked to the description, including at the podcast. Thanks so much, folks. I'm going to be back in just a moment to tell you about upcoming debates, such as tomorrow night, I Hypocrite. He is going to be on debating Robert on how slavery should be taught to children. So that should be a juicy one, to say the least. I'll be back with more updates on future debates. And James, yep. there's a last super chat that came in. Can we read it? Oh, yeah. Let's see. This one coming in from, do appreciate your question. Coding Jesus says, J.F. Haas does not believe in genes. Can you ask him why he doesn't? Haas, why don't you believe in genes? Well, uh, this would be a completely different rabbit hole entirely, but I think the idea of a gene described by Mendel, which is a unit of heredity, I don't think that stands to the modern knowledge we have about how biology works. I don't think there are single and discrete units of heredity. Of course, there are. There are the letters of DNA. Your children will have yours and those of your partner. But of they course, there uh, are genes. They don't singularly correspond to phenotypical traits because both the DNA as well as the, the um, other parts of the cell and even proteins, they all work together as one system to produce the phenotypical traits. Doesn't matter. There's still a unit of heredity. But anyways, that, that was my take. Juicy to yeah. say the least. And what I just is they... don't think they function as units, you know? 
Well, that might be a future debate. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, it, it might be interesting. Yeah. Uh, but do want to say thanks, folks. I'll be back in just a moment with updates about those future debates. So stick around. I'll be back in just a moment. Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for 4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca Cola, Pepsi, or Seven Up. All with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.